Sometimes when in the middle of a meditation retreat with all our talks and everything we talk about, of course it's about meditation. I mean, that's what we're here for. But uh, we can forget, we too sometimes can forget that everything the Buddha taught, as far as we understand, everything he taught was for the purpose of really transforming our consciousness, purifying our heart and mind, of inclining to the wholesome, abandoning the unwholesome mind states, the suffering mind states. And it's not only meditation. Meditation is kind of like the central tool, a wonderful, really, really powerful tool. But in the, in the Buddhist teachings, the path, meditation is not a complete path. It doesn't exist in isolation. And so sometimes then, uh, as I think we've said earlier, often when the Buddha would start to, to teach somebody, he would kind of start, um, he wouldn't just start with, okay, you know, this is the dependent origination, get it. Unless he knew they could. Occasionally someone could. But he would usually start with dana, and then he, uh, generosity, and talk about sila, morality, and talk about bhavana, uh, mental cultivation. All of it's mental cultivation. And so tonight I want to talk about the first of these, generosity, as a training, a transformative quality of heart, of mind. Um, as part of the teaching and as a, a way of life. Um, and what was, this, I guess, the secret for me? We always think generosity is a good idea, right? Probably no one, oh, yeah, no, nah, generosity, uh, it's okay, but, you know, or sometimes you could even hear, okay, I'll be generous because I can't meditate, but meditation's really where it's at. It's a lesser practice, generosity. But um, really, this, the generosity as a practice is not about, you know, what it looks like or what you give or being appreciated or anything like that, but this quality of open-hearted sharing is a real, in the moment of generosity, is a deep source of happiness, of joy, of transformation of heart and mind. I mean, obviously, it counters greed. That's obvious, right? (laughs) If you're being generous, unless it's something you really, really don't want, then that doesn't actually count anyway as generosity. Um, But it also, when one is really uh, generous in the moment, there's a sense of contentment, of sufficiency. There's, it fosters, it strengthens Um, the sense of connectedness. When the heart is generous in a moment, it's not filled with ill will, with separation. It counters the false sense of separation and neediness. It's really very powerful. And the thing that uh, mostly I want to try and communicate tonight, that it's kind of like I didn't didn't realize it, almost like it was a secret until I spent a lot of time practicing in Thailand and Burma, where just um, the teachings of Buddhism kind of become quite mixed in the culture, as the majority of people in both those countries are Buddhist, to varying degrees of, you know, practice, same as, you know, anywhere. But uh, in country, those two countries that are really steeped in the traditions generosity has a, um, it's, it's in the culture a lot. I don't mean to say we're not generous in this country. There's a huge generosity, I think, in various ways in this, in this country and in the West. You know, this real sense of um, <clears throat> volunteering, of offering our time and energy, not only when there's crises, but other times. There's great philanthropy in this country. And certainly I grew up with a sense of generosity is wonderful. But for me, I'm only speaking for me now. I don't mean to say for anyone else. There was often with generosity this sense of a a little bit of a should. One should be generous to those less fortunate. right? Just a a, a little hint of a a differentiation. You know, kind of like I can give because I have more. Which is great. Not that we shouldn't. But what I didn't get until I spent a lot of time on the receiving end, really, 
in these countries is the incredible happiness and joy that arises in the, the mutuality of the whole giving-receiving just as a, as a natural way of life. I don't mean everybody in Thailand, everybody in Burma, but it just is a way that, um, I don't know, I've just learned so much and imbibed a lot about it. And so some tonight I'll just tell little stories mostly as my way of trying to share that or communicate how it's contagious. The sense of joy in generosity of time, of little things, of food, and then the sense of joy and dignity in receiving that both go together, that not a sense of, you know, the generous person is generous because they have more, and then the poor person who receives is lesser, and there's this, it's not that at all, you know. It's really this sense of dignity and joy and mutuality that's an essential aspect of generosity. So, just to begin, um, the Buddha actually set up his sangha of nuns and monks and laymen and laywomen. He uh, made uh, the idea of sharing, of generosity, kind of a central um, connecting place of it. This This is a quotation from the Buddha. Bhikkhus. Brahmins and householders are very helpful to you. They provide you with the requisites of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicines in times of sickness. And you, bhikkhus, are very helpful to Brahmins and householders as you share with them the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end, with the correct meaning and wording and you proclaim the spiritual life in its fulfillment and complete purity. Thus, bhikkhus, this spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of suffering. Mutual support. And as I think, um, I think we've mentioned it before, that the way he set up the, the, the bhikkhus, the nuns and monks sangha, was such that they had to live near lay people so that every single day it would go out to get alms for food, you know, and you can keep food overnight and completely reliant on the generosity of the lay community for the requisites of food, lodging, medicine, and robes. And so you couldn't just kind of, you know, live... Uh, a uh, completely separate life, collect everything you need and just go off and isolate yourself. There's this sense of this mutual generosity, you know. And then also as lay people are generous to support the Sangha, then also the Sangha comes and shares with lay people, both their sila, the generosity of sharing the Dhamma, so that the four laymen and women, ordained men and women, support one another. You know, not living in isolation. And he really set up his sangha in this way. And to some extent, it still works like that, a little bit, to some extent, in the the Buddhist countries. You know, in in Thailand and in Burma, I've spent more time in Burma the last years. Uh, I just love seeing in the morning, if, if you're in a meditation center, monastery or nunnery, the nuns only go out twice a week, um, but the the monks go out every morning, early in the morning, in a in a in a line barefoot with the alms bowl and eyes downcast, and walk around the local villages. And there's like a little a little um, novice boy in which will run ahead, just ringing a bell. And so then the people in the village know that the monks are coming. And if they choose, I mean, no one has to do anything. If they choose, they come out and offer some rice, some food, whatever little food they can offer. And it's not in a personal way. You know, like the monks don't look up and go, oh, hi, you, thanks so much, nice to see you again, you know. It isn't personal. It's offering to the sangha for the continuation of the Dhamma and the sangha. I don't know, there's just something about it early in the morning and dawn and walking barefoot in silence and people coming out. I don't know, I must have been there in a previous life. I don't really know if there's previous lives. But there's something about it that is just 
so touching walking across the fields. And um, yeah, and the nuns go out in Burma twice a week. And it's really, um, you can see, because sometimes you can trail along after they let you do that. You can see that there's this kind of a happiness in the people that are offering. It's something just they choose you, they get up early and come running out just to offer, take off their shoes, offer the rice, bow, and go away, one in each bowl, and that's it. And there's this real happiness that comes from that, kind of a mutuality. And just to give a sense of how it works both ways, um, a few years ago I was staying in a, in a monastery slash meditation center so there could be lay people there meditating. Um, and it was right after a big cyclone had hit um, part of the area southwest of Yangon. This was in Yangon. And thousands and thousands of people were killed and lost their lives and their land. And even it came into Yangon, so even this whole area was really quite affected. And so right around this village, there's a lot of, it's very, very poor anyway, but people were even worse off than usual. Crops couldn't grow, rice couldn't grow because the salt water had ruined the, um, the rice fields. So in, in this monastery where we were staying, some people donated money, but then the, the, the Sayadaw, the head of the monastery, organized what's called a rice dana for every, every family in the village which meant he organized, he was offered the money, he organized and brought huge truckloads of rice. And so there was like a whole building filled with rice in the monastery. And then all the monks, because monks don't have money, they can't handle money, they couldn't actually go and do something. But they can work. So he got all this rice, then all the monks who really like want to help would get bags and go in and fill the bags with the rice and sew it up. And then the, the... in Burma, everyone has to be registered, so they actually know the name of every family in the village. So every family in the village got a little chit, and then, and then they would all come on this one particular day, and then in the side enlisted all of uh, us, a few of us who were there practicing to kind of hand it over. Because that's one beautiful thing, is it's, it's not done anonymously. It's not this sense of, oh, we don't want you to know who's giving, and you should just take it and be ashamed that you need stuff. It's all the sense of the real valuing of both the offering and the receiving as an aspect of happiness in purifying our heart and mind. So everyone would line up from the village, come, and we would each take turns heaving these like 50-pound bags of rice to each person, you know, and these little ladies would come. It would take two of us, another friend and I, to lift this bag, you know, we're handing it to her. She goes, plop, puts it on her head and goes like running off. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Every time suddenly she'd have a kid on both hands or one kid and then plop the rice on and go off. So, you know, everyone was different. Some people really, really just looking at you. Some people you could see felt maybe a little funny. But anyway, we at first feel awkward. Like we don't want to think like, oh, we're so hot, you know, giving you rice. But then you start to just feel so happy at the mutuality. So anyway, people went off. And then the next morning, the monks would go out in their alms round, and there's always the same, each, each monastery kind of has the same trajectory. So, you know, like there's another monastery nearby, they would have a slightly different path. So the same houses don't have to, you know, choose <laughs> which monastery to support. So the next morning, the, the monks went out, and they know which the same people, the same houses usually offer. And there was a friend of ours who was a monk at the time. I mean, not a Burmese guy. He's a Mexican guy, actually. So he came back that next morning. And he was really touched. And he said, we went out. And now there were so many other people offering rice. Because they'd got rice yesterday. And now they had rice so they could offer some rice. And that's the first thing they did with it. They came out in the morning and they said they brought like their little kids and they had their little kids like giving the offering of rice back to the monks. And just that sense of, he was so touched. I was so touched when when I heard it. Just the sense of how, and it's so often that way I'll see when people in Burma get something, the first thing they think is, how can I share this? Who can I offer some of this food to? Who can I offer some of this rice to? How can I help somebody with my time? 
it's just uh, it's so in there, and and just uh, that kind of mutuality of it. Uh, I've run into that like ten million times. Um, sometimes being you know someone coming uh, a foreigner coming, uh, and sometimes I go with some friends, and other people have offered us money to take to give to nunneries that are poor that are just trying to get going or that have like 40 young little orphan girls that they're supporting on their donna and so you know we just have some money from friends that we give it's no not not a lot and when we first started doing this the many not all but many of the nuns would insist they'd come back to the to our meditation center in a few days and insist that we about four or five of us, whoever was there, would come and uh, let them offer us lunch. And we think, you know, no, no, you hardly have enough, you know. We feel like abashed or ashamed, you know. We don't want to take the little they have. And that is like so, it cuts, it cuts the whole cycle of mutuality. This sense of shutting down to receiving is actually a, a lack of generosity, of heart. So, you know, we realize we would go and, and really would be offered these amazing meals. I mean, I have some photos of the, these round tables with just completely filled with like 20, 25 little bowls of different kinds of curries and sweets and fruits and stuff for four of us, say. It's embarrassing as heck, you know? And then you see, this is like what, what the, the 30 women and little girls in the monastery, this is more than they'd have to eat in a week. And we know that. And whatever we don't eat, we've seen at one place that we're pretty good friends with, they take it and, and like they kind of parcel each out a little bit out to the little girls and they're all so happy. And you know they're saving it. They're going to parcel it out for days, what we didn't eat. But to go and not eat or not go is so uh, ungenerous. It, like it's a whole different vibe. Say, no, no, we, or we go and try not to eat, Right? It's, you can't do, you cannot, you cannot go and not eat. Or sit there, they sit there, eat, eat, have some of this, have some of this. It gets to where it's almost a nightmare, you know, you have to eat this, you have to eat this. You learn how to eat some of, a really a lot, three times more than you want, and then actually stop while there's still some left. I mean, it's more than any, any you can ever eat. But to really stop being abashed, stop feeling bad about it, and just feel the happiness of receiving the generosity and seeing how happy the nuns are to be able to offer the generosity. It's really, um, it's really contagious, you know. And after a while, it's not a sense of, I should be generous. It kind of starts like that, you know, for me. Oh, everyone's so generous. I should, you know, really try and ramp, ramp it up a little bit. Um, but after a while, there's, it really is kind of contagious, and I'm saying this because it's like a sense of the heart, the mind, becoming happy, not feeling so separate, not feeling so isolated, not kind of trying to find a parody, well, did I give as much as they gave or is it equal or whatever. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. It's this movement of open-hearted connection that's really incredibly powerful. And I want to say it's not... It's not only, I mean, I hang out mostly in, in monasteries or meditation centers, because that's why I go. But it's not just uh, a thing with ordained people. I mean, I'm not saying everybody in Burma or Thailand, just like everyone here, you know, isn't like amazingly generous, but it's amazing how often it pops up. So this is another story of maybe two years ago, again, I was with a couple of friends and some people had offered money and we were going to a money changer. It's a whole palaver that's changing now, but um, there was, you couldn't change money at banks. That's not even, that's unheard of. So you'd go and find a money changer through friends of ours and we're in this, this room and the money changers come. I mean, so it was quite some money we were changing. And in Burma at that time, the, the, the money that they give you is big, big notes and 1,000 note is like, equal to a dollar, you know, and they're big. So we had like this huge pile in the middle of the room. I mean, you feel like you're doing a drug deal or something. It's really weird, except we're in the office in the middle of the monastery. It's still 
technically illegal, but this is how what everyone does. So anyway, at this particular one, we were changing, and these guys, they're like, they're really professional, these young guys, and counting and calling up, what is it for Australian dollars, what is it for you know, euros, what is it for dollars, and you know, they have these little glasses, if there's the tiniest little dot, they won't take the dollar bills, and then they give you these, these <laughs> they give you these chot notes that are falling apart in your hand, you know, and they won't take a hundred dollar bill with a little dot, but anyway, so they're, they're looking at it, there's this pile in the middle of the room, but we were talking to our Burmese friend who was organizing it for us because it like, takes a long time, an hour or two. We're just hanging out. So she was, she's someone who's a big supporter of many monasteries and nunneries. So we were just talking about that and what we were doing and how mostly we, this money's probably going to go to build toilets in nunneries or to help support these nun schools. So we were just talking about it. Left. And then a couple of days later, the woman who had, they called us up and said, oh, a new donation came in, like $400. And she, we, who? Well, she just said anonymous. We didn't know who. We thought she runs a and b We thought maybe some, you know, some friend, some meditator had come through. But then when we went to collect, she said, no, it was the money changers. They heard what we were talking about. They heard what the money was being spent for, for nuns. And, and then they just gave $400. You know, and it's like so cool because you think of these, you know, these sleazy guys, you know. And it's like, so that's my total projection, you know. It's just this sense, it was just so touching. So it's, you know, it's a, a thing that kind of gets in there. And I'm just telling these stories because I find it kind of contagious. It's not just sperma. So I want to tell a couple other stories. This one from the States. I cut out of a magazine, no, the New York Times, ages ago. It must be at least 10 years ago. I don't have the date on it. From Detroit, talking about a man named Matt Dawson, who at this point had worked for a Ford Motor Company for 59 years. And he's 78 years old. He could have retired a long time ago, but he drives a forklift. He does as much overtime as possible, 78 years old. He, gets, he earns about $100,000 a year so he can give most of it away. So he said he's given more than a million dollars to schools and charities since 1994. He said, I get joy, happiness out of this, he said at a news conference. I can go home and sleep good. And so he, Matt, this man, Matt Dawson, he, grew, he, he only went through the seventh grade in Shreveport, Louisiana, before he came to Detroit. And all he's done is work, work overtime. He's divorced, has a grown daughter. He says, you know, I was raised like that to help others. I have more than enough. For Dawson, more than enough doesn't include vacations. He drives a 1985 Ford Escort and has a little one-room bedroom, one-bedroom apartment. A big house, a big car, that doesn't excite me, he says. The first recipient of his money was the United Negro College Fund, which got $50,000 in 1994, has received $180,000 since then. He's given $200,000 to Louisiana State University, $112,000 to churches in Detroit and Louisiana, $20,000 to the NAACP, $10,000 to community colleges, and now he just gave $431,000 to Wayne State University for scholarships. Amazing, because it makes me happy. I can go home and sleep good. So see how, like, don't go thinking, oh, I should be better than I am. Let in just kind of think how these wholesome states are contagious because it touches that same inclination to the wholesome in us. You know, when, when we can tune into this, it's kind of when we talk about the pleasant it's not that we're trying to avoid pleasant. And wholesome states often have a quality of pleasantness that's onward leading, you know, that as we can really appreciate it, whether it's our own generosity or receiving generosity, even just hearing about it can brighten the heart and mind. And that's a kind of a wholesomeness that is quite useful just to soak it in, you could say. 
you turn to grasping, that's completely different. But this is a kind of, of wholesomeness that really is um, onward leading and strengthening, strengthening our mind and heart and transforming the habits of our mind. Another story, this is a, from a letter, I'll keep it anonymous, from an American woman too. So she said, um, she's writing, um, she's donating some money to a particular cause. And she said, I've been on the verge of quitting a job I no longer need, and I've been wondering if or how this job serves me. I've decided to keep the job for five or six more months and give all the earnings away to causes that I love. And this cause is the first of many. So thank you. This gift brings me great joy. She's thanking the people that she's giving money to. This gift brings me great joy and opens a whole new chapter of work as Donna, work as generosity to the world. You stop feeling like, you know, who's giving and who's receiving. It doesn't, it really stops having that sense of I'm the giver, you know, you're the receiver, or vice versa. But it's just that mutual action of generosity which takes two sides, you know, that brightens and uplifts the heart and mind of all those involved, that lets go of clinging, that opens to connectedness. Okay, one other story I just got off the BBC. I just read it two days ago. Called, it's called A Strong Woman in Mutsafarnagar in India. So I'll, I'll paraphrase it. But um, apparently in this town in India of Mutsafarnagar, recently there was fighting between Hindus and Muslims last month. And so some dozens were killed. So BBC uh, reporter Joanna Jolly <clears throat> is going there with her colleague, her local colleague who is translating, Joy Deep. So... There was a lot of anger, neighbor pitted against neighbor, but they went because she'd heard of a Muslim woman who had um, adopted a little abandoned Hindu baby and she just wanted to meet her. So she's going as a news person. So she said, you know, uh, they, they went there and as they were walking towards, this is where Hindus and Muslims had lived together peacefully for years, but now... There was all this violence and fear. So as she and her colleague are walking to this woman's little little house, she had a crowd of maybe 100 men formed around. They pressed in close. It felt really threatening. But she wanted to go. Her, trans, her colleague translator whispered that he was worried. He said, let's, let's hurry. So what they heard was, or they found, was in the arms of this little tiny woman, uh, a tiny baby. And the men said that this little baby girl had been found 10 days ago in a ditch, newborn, and being mauled by dogs. And so this woman, this really poor Muslim woman, they were convinced it was, she was a Hindu child, but it was only the generosity of a good Muslim woman that had kept her alive. So this woman had taken her in even though she had eight children of her own. So she wanted to meet this woman. She goes there and translating. She said the woman was 36 but looked decades older. And as they were sitting talking, you know, the kid was, was, you know, really tiny, didn't look very healthy, but the woman was just holding her in her arms and, yes, I hope she'll grow up and go to school and get a government job. Then she can take care of me, you know, saying. And so so the uh, newswoman says, she said, I wondered if this if this little girl could survive at all. I couldn't see any food in the courtyard, nor anything suggesting there was any money to look after her. We have a rule as journalists not to give anything to the people we interview, and it's a rule I've always followed. But the thought of the baby not having food was too much for me. So she said, you know, to her translator, I want to give some money. And she had to do it very secretively, of course, because there's this crowd of 100 men crowding around, kind of threatening. So she kind of hid it in her hand and went to shake hands with the woman, which is unusual. Women don't shake hands in India. But the woman did it and then could feel the money. And so then they went to leave. 
And she said the crowd of men came around. They were shouting at in her face. They were demanding money. And she was really scared. And they were trying to push their way back to the car. She said, just as I was beginning to wonder whether one of the men would hit me, I felt a warm touch around my stomach. It was the woman. She put her head on my shoulder, affectionately it seemed, and slowly but surely she guided me through the angry crowd. She would not let me go. Another man started shouting in my face. She held me even closer and didn't let me go until I was safely inside our car. The money I had given her was nothing. Certainly it wouldn't make much difference. I wasn't expecting anything in return, but I felt she had repaid me 100 times over with a kindness and strength that humbled me. It's that feeling of how just a little gift from the heart can evoke so much more strength, but how that gift of the woman's being willing to just see her safely to the car had a really profound effect on the journalist, which hopefully will, as they say, pay it forward to keep on going. It's this sense of we never really know the effect generosity is going to have. It really can transform So, last story from Burma about how it really transforms our consciousness. This is a story about um, two men, two two guys who became monks in their 30s. Often in Burma, when when people become monks, they often become monks quite young, you know, for various reasons, just grow up in that way. But these two men had become monks in their middle 30s. Um, And... The reason I know about them is because, again, at this meditation center we were, st- we were staying, one of the monks who lives there, kind of one of the things he likes to do is go out in the community, see who needs help, and if he can somehow facilitate something. So he had met these two monks, and they were just, they just had this little dusty plot of land with a little old crummy, you know, kuti on it. And they weren't doing much. They were just kind of hanging out there. They seemed a little lost. They weren't in part of a big meditation center. They weren't particularly meditating. They didn't have a big teacher. They weren't particularly studying. So they were monks. They wanted to be monks, but they kind of didn't know what to do with themselves. And uh, so Upanyaloka, the, the, the monk at the center, he said, you know, you guys should do something. <laughs> he said, why don't you? He suggested that the way schools work in Burma, if you go to the government school, if kids can afford that, in order to actually pass, to pass the exams, almost always the kids have to go back at night and pay the teachers for what's called tuition after school. Without this extra tuition, they don't learn enough to pass. That's the system, right? So in this neighborhood's really poor, and he says, so there's a lot of kids here. They may be going to the government schools, but they can't afford tuition. You guys are educated. Why don't you just start offering, you know, after-school tuition? And so they took it up. And so then he took us, Upanyaloka took us to meet these two guys. Very interesting, Utenobasa and Uwepola. So they didn't look like your kind of, you know, spiritual monks. They both, one had been a captain in the military, and the other one had been a businessman. When we asked him what, through a translator, he'd been like selling beer and stuff. That had been his business. And even so, his parents didn't want him to be a monk, but somehow they both wanted to quit and be monks. They both chewed betel nut, which if you've ever seen it, your whole mouth turns red and disgusting and your teeth rot out. And it's, it's not an uplifting look. In <laughs> men or women. <laughs> and one of our friends has this real, like, you know, bias. If there's any monk or nun that's chewing betel nut, she'd go, <clears throat> betel nut chewing monk, betel nut chewing nun, you know. <laughs> and right away, really hard to see past it. So she goes, oh, these are betel nut chewing monks. But anyway... We went, and they, they were having this after-school tuition. Now there's like a 100 kids coming, and they're just teaching them to read and write um, and of all ages, you know, up until about 16. And we talked to the younger one later, and he, this is like a more or less direct quote from him. He said he, he felt like he'd wasted the first 33 years of his life, just living a life, being a businessman, he said, now, he said, I'm giving my life and energy to helping others, to helping the children. He said, I feel like I've been reborn. 
he was so like uplifted when he was talking to us. You know, he said, I have a whole new life and I want to do some form of helping, some form of giving for the rest of my life. If it ends here, or there's no more way to help the children here, then I'll go somewhere else and do it for them there. You can really see the, the, the transformation, the onward leadingness that whatever led him to become a monk, but actually this everyday act of generosity of offering what they can offer to these kids is really changing the heart and mind. This is, you know, the Buddhist teaching. It's not just to be nice, it's really to purify. It's onward leading. When one is generous and delights in giving, the heart tends to be satisfied and joyous. This supports the development of virtue as a heart that is satisfied and contented easily inclines to restraint and composure. With this composure, together with the lack of remorse that generosity and virtue affords, the heart is easily settled and focused. So then meditation progresses more smoothly, and the mind naturally brightens, making it suitable for seeing things as they truly are. This is Ajahn Pasano from the island, but that's kind of a paraphrase from things the Buddha says in many places. So at the heart of the practice of generosity is at the heart of all action isn't how it looks or what someone else thinks or how much one gives or how much of one's time. It's all in the intention, right? All action the seed of action, the wholesomeness, the unwholesomeness is in the intention of mind and heart. And so uh, I read a little story from one of the Buddhas, from the time of the Buddha. There's a, uh, one of his most famous lay supporters was called Anattapindaka. He was considered the most uh, generous male lay supporter of the Buddhas. You hear about him a lot. In fact, when, when uh, he donated to the Buddha and the Sangha, um, the monastery, the dwelling at Savati, the Jeta Grove, you see that in many suttas, you know. They'll say, on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetavana, the monastery of Anattapindaka. So the Buddha spent 19 of his 45 range retreats there. So Anattapindaka is, you know, filled with faith, filled with happiness from when he first met the Buddha. He got so inspired. He's incredibly generous all through. And just this story about him is to give a sense of how the generosity isn't about how much you give or about merit, storing up merit for future lifetimes. Sometimes you hear that, you know, I can't practice, not in in the suttas, but sometimes I would hear that in Thailand or Burma. Well, I can't practice, but I'll be generous, which is great if we're cultivating, opening our own heart. But sometimes there's a sense of we're storing up merit in the merit bank for our next life, which if we're really, anyway, won't go there, but it's it's true. Every every open-hearted, generous act is a sense of wholesome karma. But the, the Buddha's not saying, you know, be generous so you have a happy life. For the Natapindaka, it's really this sense of, of coming from love and the joy that it gives. So this one story a sense, gives a sense of the importance of the intention, that it's not what's given, but the intention. So Natapindaka is just talking about how, how much he supported the Sangha, besides giving the Jeta Grove, all the hundreds of monks and nuns, he would you know, offer their breakfast, he'd make sure they have their, their, their robes and their medicine at night. And plus every day, several hundred monks would come to his mansion and he would feed them a you know, great meal every, every day. So the king of the era, King uh, Pasanadi, who you'll often also read about in the suttas, he heard about Anattapindaka's generosity and he wanted to imitate him. You're kind of like, you know, the comparing, <laughs> like when he was talking about last night. He's being generous, I can be generous too. And so then he uh, decided to supply alms every day for 500 monks and had 500 monks coming to his house and, and offering. Andy Olensky says, the, uh, had the Buddha, the head scholar at the 
Center for Buddhist Studies, a Pali scholar. He says 500 usually means a lot, basically. It's shorthand for a lot. So they were coming. But then after a while, the king heard, he learned from his servants, that the monks would come, get the food he offered, but then they would take it away with them instead of eating, go to the city and give it to their supporters, and then their supporters would offer the food back to them, and then they would eat it. And so the king was saying, what, what's the, why? I'm giving you really good, tasty food. What's this all about? So the Buddha explained to the king that in the palace, he just had his servants distributing the food, and they did it without any inner feeling, just following orders as if they were cleaning out a barn or doing anything. And in fact, they lacked faith and actually just thought the monks were parasites, had a completely wrong attitude. And so he said, when anything was given in that spirit... No one could feel comfortable accepting it, even when the meal was of the most delicious food. In contrast, the faithful householders of the city, like Anatta Pindika and Wisaka, who was the woman, the most generous woman, they really welcomed the monks as spiritual friends. A humble meal provided by a friend would be worth much more than the most sumptuous meal offered by someone who did not give it in the right spirit. So this is, you know, guys, this is really where the, the purification of our habits, the purification of our, our heart is occurring. Not in a lot, but in just that willingness to share. The Buddha again. Even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup, like when you rinse out a, cu- a bowl of food just to wash it out, you throw the rinsings of a bowl into a village pool or a pond while thinking May whatever animals live here feed on this. That would be an act of generosity. It's really this sense of how it is in our hearts. So it's not an ever sense of, I can't be generous, I have nothing. It's not that at all. In fact, one time um, we were in a small fishing village, a pretty poor fishing village, and visiting, and... Um, a friend who had been there a couple of years before hadn't been able to get into Burma, but the, the some of the people that we were that we met there remembered him. So this one kind of pretty poor fisherman remembered him. Said, oh, he's in Bangkok. He can't come. Oh, and all he had was a big old dried fish. But he said, Look, "Please take this dried fish <laughs> to your friend in Bangkok." <laughs> so we're like, "Okay," but but it's. <laughs> It's so touching, really. You know, it's really so touching. It's so sincere. And that's all he has, the dried fish. No, like, just this immediacy of giving. So we took, of course, we weren't going to Bangkok for, like, ages. But so then we think, okay, what do we do with the dried fish? And we took it to the next uh, monastery we were at and offered it for a meal. And that's how it goes. It just keeps going on and on. And I say, like, it's funny but I could get into my kind of like a kind of superior, oh, dried fish is stupid. But it's so beautiful that one offers what one has. And that's just as much a deep generosity of a heart as some billionaire giving a million dollars and writing a check and not even thinking about it. Which one is the generosity of the Buddha? You know, the generosity that's really transformative. One time when Sayada Upandita was here teaching, and uh, the translator, the monkeys, with a monk from Nepal, gave a, a talk on the practice of giving, the practice of generosity. He had a few, just a few steps to consider. So I just want to mention them because I really, uh, I don't know, just remember, wrote it down and remembered it all these years. Don't go crazy like this is like how you have to do things like this, but it just makes a few points. So the practice of giving, and the the first is, of course. When you first have your first thought of giving, take a moment and really give attention to the volition, to the intention in our heart and mind. So it's not just some thoughtless act. And you know, even we have the thought, oh, I want to give, oh, I can't quite do it. You know how it is sometimes? The Tibetans have a, a wonderful teaching I love. We say, you want to give and you just can't do it. Just practice. Take a stone in a hand and practice giving it 
into your other hand. Just practice letting it go and receiving, you know. You can kind of keep on upping the ante, you know, from stones to some good food to some money or whatever. But just practice, you know. So that's the beginning, just giving attention to the volition. Not about being perfect, but seeing what's true. Then whatever it is that one is deciding to offer to give, whether it's time, whether it's service, willingness to lend an ear to a friend, food, whatever it is, again, kind of, um, it's like purifying your volition again, just abandon, try to whatever clinging there may be to it. So, you know, and I say the sense of, okay, I, I really don't want this anymore, I'll give it. We can even barely do that. And then there's something else, the thought comes up, let me offer this. And we, it's a really pure volition in the beginning. And then we're about to offer this kind of, oh, but maybe, you know, I might use this sometime in the next 10 years. I really like this. I'll see that sometimes. I want to give away clothes. It's sitting there, hanging there. I haven't worn it for 10 years. And I'll pick it up and I'll go, yeah, but maybe. I go, what is that about? <laughs> More than I could ever need. I don't mean beat yourself up, but just watching. This is like purifying, you know, purifying the volition, abandoning attachment to it. So we're really giving, you know. And the third, and this is interesting, when it's appropriate, which is not here on silent retreat, it's not appropriate. Um, that <laughs> when it's appropriate to really give and receive very directly, face to face. And I know we have this thing, well, I mean, we don't all, but kind of somehow I get the sense in, uh, in this country that to give anonymously is really a lovely thing because you're not getting all the credit for it. But there's also something very powerful about the simple of giving face-to-face, wholehearted giving and wholehearted receiving. And like with little things, again in, in, uh, in Thailand and in Burma, where it's very much a part of the ordained culture where you go, you offer flowers, you offer food, you offer support to the nuns or the monks. And whatever it is, a little thing, a big thing, if you go say to a nunnery and offer, it's a big pile of money, it's very... It's kind of like a little ceremony. You put it on a tray, and then uh, you kneel and you hold the tray, and the, the nuns that are receiving it hold the tray, and they'll do a whole chant of metta, you know, of blessing, like they're blessing you for your generosity and wishing you metta and wishing you may you soon attain nibbana. People say that there. You offer something, they go, may you attain nibbana in the shortest possible time. Can you imagine? A friend of mine was offering just the food dana at a, at a monastery, you know, how we do here. That's where we got that. Every day people go and hand over money, you know, to, to buy the food for all the meditators that day. And she'd done this before, but she was blown away. She offered it to the, you know, the, the woman who's the secretary at the monastery, just handed her the money, and the woman took it face to face. You look, you're both holding, and she goes, may you attain nibbana in this retreat. Yeah. And my friend was like, Wow. <laughs> Doesn't it, it really imbues it with a sense of, of respect and dignity, you know? It's like, oh yeah, thanks, okay, here's the money, boom, you know? May you attain a bond. It's an appreciation, both ways. And so that happens a lot. When Sayadu Pandita was here one time, and I was on retreat, but I heard, I don't know, anyway, some book I wanted to offer him. And I was on retreat, I had a friend buy the book and give it to him. And I was happy with that. I came out of retreat, and he said, no, you have to hand it to me directly. And I was like, it was really interesting. I was embarrassed. I felt shy. I wasn't at all comfortable. I I mean, I wanted to offer the book. I was glad he had it. Let's be done with it. But he made me sit there and very formally hand it to him, and he received it very formally, really 100% present. It was such a powerful teaching for me. Of to, I don't know why I should be embarrassed to just offer a gift. You know, it's it's a real, it's really a strange thing. It's some sense, weird sense of self. But just this appreciating of the act. It's not about me. It's not about what. It's not about is it good enough. There's no judgment. It's just strengthening that movement of generosity of heart. Really completes the circle. And that leads to the fourth one, which is when we're giving, give with the heart, the mind, really present really in touch with, really focused on the giving, on the intention. Do it with 100% presence. Which, of course, we're doing everything we do with 100% presence, I know. 
But to really, to really do that. So I was thinking here, you know, how often I'll write a check to Amnesty or whatever. And, you know, that's nice. But, you know, okay, pay the electric bill, pay this bill, pay Amnesty, pay AO. You know, and they go, wait a minute. Really do it with a sense of presence, with a sense of just, you know, appreciating the generosity. That's very important, even though you can't get a return. Or like, when I, there's a the library here is like a, a place where you can put, put food in for, there's a food bank every month they you know, bring canned goods or whatever. And I see how sometimes I can just, you know, be in the supermarket and just buy a few things, run in, you know, throw it down and go. And it's so different to go buy the things with full awareness of the generosity. Not like, I'm so generous, aren't I great? It's not that. It's the sense of happiness you feel, just being able to offer, just being able to move out of my own little world. And then when I go and put the food on, just be present while I do it, that's all. There's no one there to see, there's no one there to know, but just, it, it really is very different from just kind of doing it as another errand. And then, of course, after the giving, continue to be mindful of volition. Because as we know, everything changes. You know, you give it away and go, you know, oh, I wish I'd, oh, that was $50 too much. I should have given a little less. What if I'm, you know, short at the end of the month, whatever. Just notice that. That's all. Just notice it. You don't have to let it take over. And to have a clear comprehension, like a broader awareness of the, the broader context. Like we can't always know, but it's not this sense of you have to give because someone asks no matter what. You know, there's such a thing as the giving could be damaging to you. It could be that someone, um, you're, I don't know what, you're giving to someone who's an alcoholic and you know they're just going to buy more vodka and you don't really want to support that. And there could be another way that you could be generous to them. And it's like really looking and seeing. It's not that you should give anything any time. And there's, an, there's a story of that in, in the Sutta with Anattapindika again, who had a, a nephew, I think it was a nephew, I don't have the story with me, it was short though, who would come and, and he was really rich. He could, you know, it was like Bill Gates or something today. He could give and give and give and give. And so the nephew would come and ask for a whole bunch of money, he'd give it to him and he'd go gamble it away, squander it come back, he'd ask for more, and not to Pindica would give more, he'd go gamble it away, get, you know, just get really in bad straits, come back. And so after the third or fourth time, not to Pindica says, okay, this is the last time, I'm not giving you any more money, you're just wasting it and, and ruining your life. Same thing, he comes back again, the nephew, so this time not to Pindica gives him some clothes, gives him some food, says, I'm not giving you anything else after this. Nephew goes away, same deal, comes back again, and this time Anattapindika really gave him nothing. And sometime later, the nephew was found, you know, kind of like dissolute, died, like, you know, starved to death in the gutter or died a drink of something outside the walls of the city. So you can imagine Anattapindika felt horrible and went to the Buddha like, oh, you know, my God, what did I do? I should have. And the Buddha said, in essence, no, 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 you did right. He said, there's some people you cannot help. You know, there's some people for some in a particular... Remember, he has the vision of lifetimes, you know. So this isn't like one lifetime, this person's over. So in this life, this person was just so caught in the negative mind states, he couldn't break out of it. Your giving, 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 giving wouldn't have helped him. And I just think that's interesting, to have a sense of the broader context. It's not, not that... Like when... The first time I went to India, you know, and there's just so much poverty. And coming from the States and never having traveled much before, when I first went, I was 19. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, it's just overwhelming, the suffering. And there's a sense, in a sense, you could give away every single thing I had and all the money I had with me in like the first hour, easily. And it would help a little bit people, but, you know, you can't touch the depth of it and the sense of how do you deal with that, you know? So it's the sense of it doesn't mean you have to give away everything or you're not generous. You have the whole context. But it's interesting. And then I've added, this is the seventh thing I add is for us to receive in that same open, present, mindful way. 
Because as I was saying, the, the receiving is an essential part of giving. And for me, I've found that I've learned so much from receiving joyously and appreciatively. And so then just the last thing I want to mention about the practice of generosity. It's not from, from uh, that talk anymore. But not only in the giving and the receiving, but this is something the Buddha speaks about in the suttas. The value and the importance is this use of wise thought, wise contemplation, of reflecting on your own generosity, also reflecting on your own sila, your own moral conduct. So at times when, you know, your mind is really caught in negativity, or remember the other few weeks ago I talked about what cultivates brightness of mind, confidence, faith, you know, and you can't, you can't be mindful, you can't find anything good. Sit and actually contemplate your own generosity, not your lack of generosity, but to really incline the mind, to tune into, to remember the wholesomeness. Sort of like previous comma, the previous intentions of generosity ripen as appreciation of that in memory in the present moment. A very simple example, if you've ever spent some years taking care of aging parents, you may know how however much you do, it's very easy to feel that you haven't done enough because there's always so much more one could do. At least that's my experience. You can think of all the ways, you know, I should have given everything I had. I should have stopped my life. I should have moved to Atlanta. I should have done this. I should have, you know. And can really turn negative or guilty. But try really inclining the mind to the beautiful, actively contemplate all the acts of love and generosity. Just bring it up. Not, I'm so great. That's an ego thing. But just let it start to come. And, and sila too. This is a very powerful aspect. So I just want to end with a quotation from the Buddhist, the sutta, a sutta where the Buddha is talking about this. So this, what I'm reading is recollecting your own generosity. He says exactly the same thing for recollecting your own sila, your own non-harming conduct. So he's talking to a layman. So this is the case where you recollect your own generosity, thinking, it is a great gain for me that among people overcome with the stain of possessiveness, I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being generous, responsive to requests, delighting in the distribution of alms. So really thinking about that, thinking about the happiness of it. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting generosity, at that time her mind is not overcome with greed, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. It's a literally inclining to the wholesome. It's literally transforming our consciousness, the habits of our mind. Her mind heads straight, based on generosity. And when the mind, the heart, is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones has a sense of the meaning, has a sense of the Dhamma, experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. And then the same thing I read before, and one who is joyful, rapture arises. And one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calmed experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. So, Mahanama, you could develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. In other words, any time. And that's a really wholesome use of thought. So just encourage you all to recollect your generosity, recollect your wholesome conduct, and just noticing how in that moment your mind is freed from greed, hatred, and confusion. This is the path the Buddha is teaching us. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.